All right, good morning. So we are now, uh, believe it or not, in week seven in our Messages in the Miracles series. We've spent the last seven weeks looking at Jesus' miraculous signs in the book of John. And uh, we're actually looking at the last miraculous sign that Jesus does before the biggest one of all, the resurrection, which we'll be celebrating, of course, on Easter. And this sign is known as uh, the raising of Lazarus. Now, I got to tell you guys, this is actually one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's moving, it's emotional, uh, it's, it's actually very detailed. It's probably the longest narrative in the Gospels, uh, and there's a lot that we can learn from it. Now, this series is titled Messages in the Miracles, as I've been emphasizing, because uh, we believe that Jesus is communicating things to us through these miracles. Uh, they're not just about doing something cool so we can go wow, although that's part of it, uh, but they're also about communicating certain things about, about who he is and what he's come to do. And as I reflected this week on this, this miracle, I realized that the messages that are being communicated through this miracle all have something to do with death, or at least the ones that really stood out to me all have something to do with death. And that makes this miracle one that is insignificant for every one of us. Uh, I don't mean to be uh, morbid, but the reality is uh, death is something that affects every one of us, right? Uh, male or female, rich or poor, young or old, we are all in the same boat. There's some comfort in that, right? We are, we are all in the same boat, and that boat is headed towards uh, a waterfall. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> this miracle has some very important things to say about Jesus' relationship to that waterfall. Uh, again, this is one of the longest stories in the Gospels, and so we're not going to read it all at once. We're going to take it piece by piece and talk about it. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, it's uh, John 11, starting in verse 1. John 11, starting in verse 1. Let me say a prayer for us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to look at your word. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, make these words jump off the page. God, um, help us to see how they relate to our lives here and now. God, we, we want you to speak to us. We want to be open to receive what you have to say. And so we ask for that now, Lord. Help us to be attentive and help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, we'll pause here for a second. Did you know that Jesus didn't just have followers, didn't just have disciples, didn't just have family, but he also had friends? Uh, that's what this is saying here. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, we have reason to believe that these people were also followers of Jesus, they were, but they weren't part of the 12 disciples, they weren't blood relatives 
of Jesus. They were people that Jesus liked spending time with and who liked spending time with him. And, you know, the Gospels, they give us certain details that are clues to uh, things in Jesus' life that we don't have a lot of information about. Like, for example, Lazarus. We don't hear anything about what Lazarus does before getting sick. <laughs> but obviously, he had a relationship with Jesus before he got sick, enough so that Mary and Martha could say, oh, the one that you love is sick. So this is, Jesus had real relationships with real people, the kind of relationships of, of friendship where you enjoy spending time with each other. And one of his friends is really sick right now. And so his sisters send this messenger with a report, the one that you love is sick. And I want us to focus on those words for a minute. The one that you love is sick. Just in case you had any doubt at all, and I don't think this is really a problem in this church, but just in case you had any doubt at all, people who Jesus loves can get sick. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're struggling with a health condition, you should never take that as a sign that Jesus doesn't love you. Uh, unfortunately, uh, sometimes things are taken that way. Jesus loved Lazarus, and yet Lazarus got sick. sick sickness is not a sign that God doesn't love you. So the messenger tells Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And Jesus assures the messenger, this sickness will not end in death. Instead, what is about to happen is going to result in glory for God and glory for his son. Which is a fancy way of saying, uh, what's about to happen is going to make Jesus look really cool. Really amazing. Okay, continuing. Yet, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, Jesus doesn't do here what we would expect a caring friend to do, does he? You get a message, your friend is sick, oh, okay, I'll, I'll just hang out here. Um, and if you're wondering, why does Jesus do that? Why does he wait? Well, hold on to that thought, because we're going to find out the reason in a little bit. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. In other words, let us go to where Lazarus is. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? So a little while before this, Jesus had been talking to some of the religious leaders, and he said, among other things, I and the Father are one. Essentially, God and I are the same. And uh, that, they didn't take that very well. Okay, the religious leaders thought of language as that, like that as being blasphemy because Jesus was making incredible claims about who he was. And so they picked up stones to kill Jesus, to throw them at Jesus and kill him. That's how tense things got. But Jesus and his disciples managed to, to escape from that. And yet now Jesus is saying, let's go back to that area. And the disciples are like, uh, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> and so Jesus says to them, Get ready for this. <laughs> Jesus says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. That makes sense, right? It's kind of like, well, smell the color nine. Like, that's... <laughs> I had to look at this for a while to, to make heads or tails of it. So if your head is spinning, I don't, blame, I don't blame you at all. I think the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is to remember that Jesus says that he is the light of the world. 
okay? So when Jesus says, oh, well, think of it this way, okay? The disciples say, we can't go back there. You're going to die. And then Jesus says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Which is like saying, are there not 12 hours of me? In other words, am I not here for a set amount of time? And eventually I'm going to have to leave. Right? So he's, he's basically saying, why should we be so focused on my self-preservation? Because I'm appointed to only be here for a set amount of time, just as the daylight only lasts for 12 hours every day. Um, and then when he says, a man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It, it is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. That's a way of reassuring the disciples. Because he's saying, if, if you walk in the light, in other words, if you walk with the light of the world, if you stick with me, you're going to be okay. But if you try to go apart from me, that's when you're going to have a problem. So even if I'm going to walk into the heart of a place where death is a risk, you should still walk with me because I am the light of the world. Okay? So I think that's what's, what's going on here. Pretty sure that's what Jesus means. So continuing in verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Classic disciples misunderstanding Jesus. Happens all the time. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And then I love this. <laughs> so then Jesus told them plain, plainly, Lazarus is dead. Uh, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now, I said earlier that there's a reason, right, why Jesus delayed for two days. And this is where we find out the reason. Uh, the reason is because Jesus is planning on doing a miracle that's really going to knock people's socks off. Okay? He's planning on doing a miracle that is going to inspire belief. He says, it, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there. Why? Because what's, what he's planning is going to be really, really affecting, life-transforming, very powerful. It's the sort of thing that's going to inspire belief. His purpose in delaying is in order to make God's power more clear. He's delaying so that he can do something awesome. And I think it's really important for us to take note of this, okay? Because sometimes something is going on in our lives, it's difficult, and we pray, and we feel like God is silent, right? We feel like God is delaying. I imagine that is how Mary and Martha felt when they sent this messenger to go and get Jesus. And the messenger came back and he didn't have Jesus. He's probably like, well, where is he? And the messenger was like, I don't know. He said he was going to wait two days. And so sometimes in our own lives, it feels like that too. But I think what we need to realize is that if it feels like Jesus is delaying, it's probably because he's planning something really good. Uh, and that really good thing that Jesus has planned. That might not happen tomorrow. It might not happen next year. It might not even happen until after physical death. But I think this story inspi should inspire us to have a confidence that if it feels like Jesus is delaying, he has a purpose in it, and it is ultimately for a good reason. And I think that 
when that good thing happens that Jesus has been planning, whenever it is, we're not going to say, oh, I wish you had given this to me sooner. I think we're going to say, man, it's so much more awesome and so much more cool on your timetable than it would have been on mine. But hindsight is always 2020, right? In the moment, we just have to have faith that even if it feels like God is delaying, that it is ultimately for a good purpose, and it's going to make God's power and his beauty and his goodness more, uh, more clear to us than if he had just given us whatever we wanted in the moment. All right, continuing in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead, had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to, to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now, I want to give a little bit of cultural background here because I think it helps to put us into the story. In those days, in Jewish culture, it was common when someone died that the immediate family would spend the next seven days uh, in the house. Uh, and I have to be careful when I say this. The custom is called sitting shiva. Uh, and it's actually a, a custom that is still practiced by many Jews today uh, when somebody dies. And during that time, when the family is sitting shiva, uh, neighbors would come and bring food, and people from all over the area would come to the house in order to express their condolences and to mourn uh, and grieve. And some people would come, and even uh, part of sharing in the, in the grief would be to wail loudly. Okay? So this is the environment that Mary and Martha are in. And over the last four days, they've spent most, if not all, of their time in the house receiving the mourners and hearing this, this loud wailing. And then Jesus arrives just outside of the village, and word comes to Martha that Jesus is en route. And uh, she breaks with sitting Shiva custom, and she leaves the house, and she goes out to meet Jesus. And then this is what happens. Lord... Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha is showing great faith here, right? She's saying, I know that if you had been here earlier, my brother would not have died. But I know even now, God will give you anything that you ask. In other words, I know you actually could still heal him. I'm, I'm, she's acknowledging that. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Uh, in those days, many Jews believed the dominant uh, perspective was that someday in the future, all those who had died would be raised to life again. So that's what Martha's referring to here. She's actually, uh, she's, she's referring to good Jewish doctrine. You know, Jesus is saying, oh, your brother will rise again. And she's like, yes, Lord, I know that. I affirm that. And honestly, Martha is doing here what I think most of us would do as well. You know, if we were at a funeral and somebody said, don't worry, your loved one is going to rise again. We go, yes. Yeah, that's what we look forward to on the last day. Um, so she's not doing anything wrong here. Okay, she's just affirming the common belief of the time. Um, 
But what Jesus says next hints that he's thinking of a more immediate resurrection than that one in the future. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die, will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. So she goes back in to get her sister. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, so Jesus is still outside the house, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Now notice, the author of this seems to think that it's important for us to know that the Jews who were mourning with Mary are following her outside. Now, why is that important? Well, we should feel the dramatic tension rising here because the text has been clear to tell us that many of these people are, are Jewish mourners from Jerusalem. So there are people here who could be out to get Jesus. And they think that Mary is just going out to the tomb to mourn because she's breaking with sitting Shiva custom and she's going out of the house. But they think, oh, she must just be going to mourn. But instead, they're, they're following her and then they're going to find that she's going to the man who's on the Pharisees' most wanted list. Right? Okay, so we should feel the stakes rising in this moment. Um, continuing. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Just like Martha, right? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now again, I want to make a few clarifications here that I think help to put us in this moment, okay? When it says that Mary and the Jews who came with her started weeping, we need to understand this, this weeping as loud wailing. Okay, the, the Greek word that's used there for weeping, it has a specific connotation of, of loud, dramatic, public crying, which was probably genuine on Mary's behalf, right? Because she loved her brother. So she's probably wailing very genuinely. But all these, these mourners that are there as well they're, they're probably doing it kind of as a, as a performance, which is not meant to be condescending, right? This is what you do at a funeral, is you express your grief in a loud and public way. Um, but, but that's what's going on here, this loud wailing, which is part of the, the custom of what you do in this sort of situation. So in this moment, Jesus is enveloped by all of this wailing, this expression of grief, over, over death, and we're told that the way he reacts is that he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And I have to tell you guys that everybody agrees, if you read the commentaries, that the, word, the words there, deeply troubled, don't really capture the meaning in the original Greek. Uh, or deeply moved, sorry. Deeply moved doesn't really capture the meaning. Because in Greek, the words that get translated here as deeply moved refer literally to, ready for this, the snort of a horse. Okay? 
And when this phrase is applied to human beings, it refers to anger, outrage, or fury. So Jesus isn't just moved here. He's ticked off. He's really upset. Now, why would that be? Why would Jesus be so ticked off in this moment? Well, okay, what some people will say is that Jesus is really angry because of the people's lack of faith. Um, In other words, he's angry because all these people are crying about Lazarus when what he really wants is for them to have a confidence that he's there and he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he's upset at them for wailing. But I'll tell you guys, I'll be honest, uh, I, I don't buy that. Okay, And there's two reasons I don't buy that. The first reason is because I don't think the people really have any reason to assume that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. We know that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to go wake Lazarus up, but we don't have any clear indication that he, he made it clear to Mary or to Martha or to any of these Jewish mourners, I'm here and I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead in the immediate sense right now. Okay, I, I honestly just don't see that. So I don't see how it makes sense for Jesus to be outraged at people for wailing at a funeral. I I just don't get that. So that's the first reason I don't buy this interpretation. But the second reason is the one that really seals it for me. And in order to, to give you that reason, we have to read just a little bit further. Here's what comes next. Jesus says, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. So notice those those two little words, Jesus wept. My question is, if Jesus is outraged at the people for crying, why does he cry too? Well, some people will say, oh, Jesus is crying because of the, the people's lack of faith. But that just doesn't feel right to me. I mean, to think that Jesus would hear all this wailing and then he would go, I can't believe they don't have faith in me. Oh, I can't believe that. I I just, I can't believe that they don't think I'm going to raise Lazarus, even though I didn't really tell them. Yeah, I just, that just doesn't fit to me. I, I don't, I don't buy it. So if Jesus isn't angry at the people's lack of faith, what is he angry about? I don't think Jesus is angry at the people at all. I think Jesus is angry at death itself. Uh, Remember what he said to Martha. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. If Jesus is the life, then death stands in opposition to who Jesus is. Jesus is, uh, death is an affront to to Jesus' identity. And I think what we're seeing here is what happens when the life encounters death. It makes sense that when the resurrection and the life encounters death, there would be outrage. There would be be fierce determination to overcome this enemy. There would be something like the snorting of a horse before going into battle. You know that anger that you feel sometimes when you have a sense that this is just not the way it's supposed to be. That's what I think Jesus is feeling 
in this moment. You know, there are times where you have that feeling, this is just not the way things are supposed to be, where your anger isn't even directed at a particular person. You know, like when you find out that um, a child has been diagnosed with a fatal illness, something like that. It shouldn't be like this. And, and that is the attitude that I think we see in Jesus here. He's surrounded by death. He's surrounded by the wailing cries of people mourning death. And he knows that human death was never part of God's good design. It's a consequence of sin. And so he's frustrated. He's angry. He's thinking, it's not supposed to be like this. And then when he sees his friend's tomb in the distance, his anger turns to weeping because the cold reality of death is right there in front of him, the way it's not supposed to be. So if you're taking notes on this, what are the messages in the miracle? This is the first message in the miracle that I want us to see. God hates death. God hates death. Jesus is God in the flesh. So if we want to know what God is like, we can't do any better than looking at Jesus. And what we see here when Jesus comes face to face with death is that he is deeply moved. He is angry. And then the second message in the miracle that I want us to see here is very closely related to the first one. It's the one that comes through in that short little verse, Jesus wept, which is God grieves over death. God grieves over death. Um, when it says Jesus wept, the word in the Greek for wept is actually a different word from weeping, which was used just a little bit earlier to refer to Mary and the mourners. Remember, I said that word for, for weeping has the connotation of loud crying. Well, there's deliberately a different Greek word that's used for Jesus here, and the word that's used here it has a connotation of silent sobbing. Okay, so this is the kind of crying where you put your hands over your face in order to muffle the sound. And I think that's important because if it had the other word, it could suggest that Jesus was just following custom, you know, that he was sort of giving a little performance of crying. But that's not the kind of weeping that's here. This is genuine crying. This is not a show. It's not a performance. It's real. Okay. And so what we need to see here is that God has genuine grief over death. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. You know, sometimes we Christians can assume that if somebody dies, that we're just supposed to have a positive attitude about it. That if we have real faith, that our attitude will just be, oh, well, they're in heaven now. Everything's fine. And that maybe even to cry at a funeral is somehow a sign of, of weakness in our faith. But even though our faith should be a source of, of confidence and peace for us in those times, there is nothing wrong with expressing grief over death. In fact, I go so far as to say it's healthy. It's a healthy thing to do because it's not the way it's supposed to be. And if you ever felt like you needed permission to grieve after losing somebody... Well, you have permission from the one who matters most, from God himself. Okay, let's keep reading. Going to verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. There's those, that phrase again, deeply moved. Okay, I see Jesus going towards the tomb, fierce determination in his eyes, outrage, anger at this, this enemy of death. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Wow, that is powerful. You know, I'm sure it wasn't just amazing, but I bet it was pretty terrifying. <laughs> because here's this guy who's been dead for four days, and we might not realize this, but he's wrapped up in linen, so he's probably like, you know, walking like a mummy, his face covered up, every, he's all, I mean, this is a guy who, he hadn't just died, I mean, they put a bow on him, you know, they, <laughs> they wrapped him up to be, they were done, you know. And yet here he is, he's standing up, he's awkwardly probably disoriented, does, can't even see where he's going, hobbling out of the tomb. But it didn't even matter that he was all wrapped up. Jesus could still raise him from the dead. And that brings us to the third message in this miracle, which is Jesus is stronger than death. Jesus is stronger than death. Jesus hates death. He mourns over death but he is not powerless in the face of death. He's greater. You know, and this is just such an important message for us to hear. Because if you are an unbiased observer of the world and you're realistic, you're going to come to the conclusion that nothing is stronger than death. Nothing. Death is just like a monster that swallows everything up. You know, <laughs> Regardless of how well a life, is a life is lived, every life ends. And if you go back about 120 years in time, the entire cast of characters on earth is different, right? Regardless of race, gender, religion, social class, death wins. Or at least it seems that way. But here Jesus shows us that regardless of how it looks, there is something that is stronger than death. Jesus is stronger. And when we have faith in the one who is stronger than death, we also are stronger than death. Just as death can't win over Jesus, when we have faith in him, death cannot win over us. And even though it might look like death has won for a time, just like it looked like it won for Lazarus, okay, Lazarus is a sign that it will not win forever for those who put their trust in the one who has power over death. 
You know, one of the reasons that I really think that we need to hear this message, that this message is so important, is because until we truly believe that something is stronger than death, we're never going to be free to do what's right in the world. You know, because if you think that nothing is stronger than death, you're going to think nothing's more important than survival. Okay, I'll say that again. If you think that nothing is stronger than death, you're going to think that nothing is more important than survival. And if you think nothing is more important than survival, you can justify a lot of terrible things. You can justify shooting someone before you know whether they're friend or foe. Because, hey, i got to protect myself. Survival. You can turn away all kinds of opportunities to show people love and compassion and generosity and hospitality. Why? Because they might be a threat. If you value survival more than anything else, then you will sacrifice on the altar of self-preservation every good thing. Love, generosity, hospitality. You'll give it up. Because survival is the most important thing. But when we believe that Jesus is really stronger than death, he frees us to care about things more than survival. He frees us to let love lead us rather than fear. Finally, one last message I want us to see is that Jesus is willing to die so that we might live. One of the parts of this story that's easy to miss is that Jesus knows that when he heals Lazarus, this is going to set off the chain of events that leads to his suffering, crucifixion, and death. Remember, he said, are there not 12 hours of daylight? In other words, don't I have to die eventually? Aren't I getting close? So Jesus knew that his time was running out And he knew that if he did this miracle, it was going to be so radical, so public, that this would finally be the thing that leads to his death. And he was right. We're told that right after this, some of those Jewish mourners that witnessed this, they went and they told the Pharisees and they plotted to kill Jesus. And they succeeded, briefly. They succeeded, right? And so I want us to see that when Jesus weeps, okay, it's, it's not just that he's weeping out of, out of compassion, out of uh, grief for his friend, out of hatred of death. That's all there. I totally believe that. But in addition to that, he's also anticipating the suffering that he's going to have to go through in order to raise Lazarus from the dead, in order to save Lazarus from eternal death, in order to save any of us from eternal death. Jesus is going to have to die. Can you imagine in that moment, how overcome with emotion you would be if you were carrying that weight. You know, the weight, first of all, of, of, of feeling uh, the presence of death, your enemy in front of you, and seeing the way that it has attacked your loved one, but then also realizing what you are going to have to go through in order to destroy this enemy. You know, that would certainly be, be enough to bring me to tears, that's for sure. Um, it, it helps us to have some insight into, into Jesus' weeping. The paradox of this story is that in giving life to Lazarus, Jesus signs his death warrant. And what I want us to see is that that is what Jesus has done for every one of us. Okay, Jesus signed his death warrant so that we might live.
He gave up everything so that we might be truly free, free from death, free from the curse, free from sin. Jesus said, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. My prayer this morning is that we would believe that, that we would believe that someone is stronger than death. Death is not the strongest thing, that we would believe that Jesus is stronger because that belief will transform our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and and we praise you for being stronger than death. We thank you that you are the one that has victory over the grave and through you we can too. Father, I pray that we would believe that what you say is true, that you are stronger. And I pray that the reality of of that uh, would transform our lives, Lord, that we would be free not just to live to survive, but to do what's truly right. Father, I pray that we would be a people uh, where the curse of death uh, does not control us. Father, I thank you for the hope that we have, the hope of resurrection through you. We pray that it would give life to us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.